Hello, 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 and welcome to English Learning for Curious Minds by Leonardo English, the show where you can listen to fascinating stories and learn weird and wonderful things about the world at the same time as improving your English. I'm Alistair Budge, and today we are going to be talking about the Tower of London. It is one of the most famous monuments in the UK, with almost three million visitors every year. And its story, the story of the Tower of London, is full of gruesome tales of executions, torture, and ghostly hauntings. Not only this, it is also home to the dazzling crown jewels of the United Kingdom. It is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and is actually the oldest standing building in London. And today we are going to tell its amazing story. But before we get right into today's episode, I want to remind you that you can become a member of Leonardo English and follow along with the subtitles, the transcripts, and its key vocabulary over on the website, which is leonardoenglish.com. Membership of Leonardo English gives you access to all of our learning materials, all of our bonus episodes. So that's almost 300 different episodes now, as well as two new ones every week, plus access to our awesome private community. Where we do live events, challenges, and much, much more. So, if you are ready to take the next step on your English learning journey, the place to go is leonardoenglish.com. Okay then, the Tower of London. Our story starts just under a thousand years ago, with the arrival of a French Duke of Normandy to England. His name was William, and he would later become William the First. King of England after he invaded and conquered England in 1066. Upon his victory, William needed to secure his reign, his rule over the English. As he feared an uprising against him, and he lacked the support of the people, he immediately ordered that the first fortifications be built on what is now the site of the Tower of London. While London and the south of the country had surrendered to William, he did not have the people's loyalty yet. Not everyone accepted him as king. What's more, the entire north of the country was still controlled by English lords who were determined to fight back against him. So, to protect himself and to make a sign to the English people that he was not someone to be messed with, someone to rise up against. William the First did what kings and queens have done for centuries. He decided to build an extremely secure fortress that would send a clear message to the people of the country. It would be built in a very different style and with very different materials to the rest of London. At the time, most buildings in London were made of wood, and fires were frequent. There were a lot of fires. St Paul's Church, for example, the precursor to St Paul's Cathedral, burned down in 1087. William had grown up in Normandy, in northern France, and he knew one material that wouldn't burn down: stone. And in particular, a type of stone called Caen stone, a kind of light, creamy stone from the city of Caen in northern France. William, perhaps. Unsurprisingly, ordered for his new palace to be built in this white, creamy stone, which was brought over from France specifically. The site he chose 
stood on the remains of two Roman defensive walls, which William would use to shore up his defences to reinforce the fort. Around 1078, 12 years after the invasion, work began on what we recognise now as the White Tower, the most famous and oldest part of the Tower of London complex. Just to clarify, today when you hear someone talking about the Tower of London, they normally mean the whole site, which counts numerous buildings, not just the White Tower. But the White Tower is the main part of the tower. It is a square shape, 36 by 32 metres, and rises up 29 metres into the sky. By modern standards, it's no skyscraper, but it was by far the tallest and most imposing non-religious building in the city exactly as William the Conqueror intended it to be. Over the next several centuries, fortifications, defences, were added around the White Tower. By the time of Edward I's reign in the 14th century, the Tower of London boasted two defensive walls, plus a huge moat. A moat is the defensive ditch that was dug around castles and often filled with water, making it harder for invading soldiers to cross. The Tower of London became England's strongest castle, and it was home to sumptuous medieval royal apartments where the king and queen could stay. Bear in mind that in medieval times, the monarch would frequently move between royal residences. Although a place called Westminster Palace was the main royal palace, the Tower of London was also an important residence for the monarch to stay in, especially in times of crisis when the king or queen needed somewhere where they knew they would be safe. The tower continued to be used as a royal residence right up until the time of the Tudors, the period from 1485 to 1603, although it was still common for the monarch, the king or queen, to occasionally stay there in later years for ceremonial reasons. But when people think of the Tower of London, it isn't normally thought of as a royal palace. It's most famous for being the place where enemies of the state were held and then executed. While the tower had also been used to house prisoners from as early on as 1100, it wasn't until the Middle Ages that it really became a prison in its own right. Prisoners in the Tower of London were most often political prisoners. While there were lots of other prisons in London, the Tower of London was the most secure prison in the country. For this reason, it was used for prisoners who were considered to pose a threat to national security, or those who had been accused of treason. Members of powerful noble families who fell out of grace with the monarch would all too often end up being locked in the Tower. And, as you might imagine, if you are a political prisoner who has got on the wrong side of the king or queen, there is normally only one way you get out of prison. I don't mean you were set free to go off and live your life elsewhere. Oh no, English kings and queens weren't usually so forgiving. The journey of a political prisoner at the Tower of London would normally end in a public execution. If the prisoner was a high-ranking noble or had a lot of supporters, they might be executed at Tower Green, within the Tower of London itself. If 
the prisoner was not a noble. If they were a high-profile rebel, for example, they would be killed in front of a large crowd. Executions in front of the masses took place at Tower Hill, just a little to the northwest of the tower, outside of the main compound. By the 16th and 17th centuries, the Tower of London had become the most important and the most feared prison in the country. So much so that the phrase being sent to the tower has become another way of saying being imprisoned, being put in prison, even today. Now, you've probably heard of a lot of the prisoners who either spent time imprisoned in the tower or who ended up being executed there. William Wallace, the famous Scottish freedom fighter, was a prisoner in the tower before being brutally executed in 1305. Guy Fawkes, the English conspirator who unsuccessfully attempted to blow up the Houses of Parliament in 1605, was also imprisoned in the Tower of London and subjected to excruciating torture in an attempt to make him say who else helped him. Henry VIII imprisoned two of his queens, Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, in the Tower before having them executed. His daughter, Elizabeth I, would also spend a spell in the Tower before becoming queen. On a side note, we do actually have episodes on William Wallace, on Guy Fawkes, and on the wives of Henry VIII. So if you haven't listened to those and you weren't aware that they existed, well, they do. But the Tower of London wasn't just for notable rebels or out-of-favour wives. In the late 15th century, the Tower is thought to have become the final gruesome resting place for two young boys, two royal princes. After their father, King Edward IV, died unexpectedly from illness, his 12-year-old and 9-year-old sons were kept in the Tower of London on the orders of their uncle Richard, a man who would later become King Richard III. Their uncle kept them in the Tower supposedly for their own protection, until the 12-year-old prince was old enough to become king. But the boys mysteriously disappeared and their uncle Richard became king instead. It has always been assumed that they were murdered, as they were never seen alive after they were sent to the tower, supposedly for their own safety. In 1674, however, two skeletons that would fit the age of the princes were found buried under the staircase in the White Tower of the Tower of London. The tower was used less and less as a prison going into the 19th and 20th centuries, although Rudolf Hess, Hitler's second-in-command, was imprisoned there during World War II as the last state prisoner. The last person to be executed in the tower, in fact, was a Nazi spy called Joseph Jacobs, who had parachuted into Britain, was discovered, sent to the Tower of London, and was killed by a military firing squad in 1941. In a strange twist of fate, the Tower of London's very last prisoners were the infamous Cray Twins in 1952. They were only in the Tower for a few days after failing to report for national service, for military service. They were released, and the Twins would go on to become London's most feared gangsters. If you'd like to learn more about the Crays and their murderous life of crime, by the way, you can listen to episode number 223. Today, if you visit the Tower of London, you'll see this amazing castle steeped in history. 
but you will also see some slightly strangely dressed men and women. Men and women normally wearing bright red clothes, a big black hat, and occasionally carrying a black bird in their hand. These people are called beef eaters, and no story about the Tower of London would be complete without them. They aren't officially called beef eaters, they are called the Yeoman Warders, and they can trace their history back to Henry VII, when he created this regiment as a sort of personal bodyguard. Why they are called beef eaters is a subject of debate. Some say it comes from the French buffetier, which is an old French word for a waiter or servant. Others say it comes because part of their salary was paid in beef. In any case, the yeoman warders, or rather the beef eaters, continue to this day, and act as sort of ceremonial guards of the tower and guides to tourists. The beef eaters still wear the same uniform as they did in Tudor times, and they live within the tower complex, often joined by their families. In the past, being a beef eater could be passed down from father to son, but today you have to have been in the British armed forces for at least 22 years, and with at least the rank of an officer, and have been awarded the Long Service and Good Conduct Medal. And contrary to popular belief, there are female beef eaters too. The role is traditionally held by men, but there have been three female beef eaters, including a lady called Moira Cameron, who is currently in the role. Aside from living in the Tower of London, the beef eaters also have another very special perk. Their very own personal Tower of London pub, called The Keys. Not only is the pub private to yeoman warders only, it also sells two exclusive craft beers that are brewed just for them, with of course the widely available beef eater gin, of which they receive a bottle for their birthday. The beef eaters are also responsible for the ravens of the Tower of London. Ravens, by the way, are the large black birds that are prized for their intelligence and their ability to mimic, to copy human voices. They look a bit like big crows. The tradition of keeping ravens at the Tower of London dates back to the time of Charles II in the 17th century. While there had been ravens earlier, Charles II was the first monarch to insist that they were protected appointing a yeoman warder ravenmaster to care for them. Legend has it that there must always be a minimum of six ravens at the tower, or else the tower and the monarchy will fall, it will collapse. Naturally, it's not a good idea to leave the fate of the Tower of London or the monarchy completely up to the ravens, so their feathers are cut so they can't fly too far. As a little fun linguistic aside, the collective noun for a group of ravens is an unkindness or a conspiracy. It's probably linked to ravens often being considered to be unlucky or creepy. Now, just to conclude this episode, I wanted to share some other interesting facts about what else the Tower of London was used for. Facts you might not hear on a tour or read about in a guidebook. From the 1200s to 1835, the Tower of London also housed what was known as the Royal Menagerie, essentially a zoo containing exotic animals. 
The Tower of London was at one point home to a polar bear, a gift from the King of Norway, an elephant from the King of France, and three lions, or possibly leopards, gifted by the Holy Roman Emperor. Over the years, the collection grew to include a tiger, jackals, leopards, and eagles. However, over time, people became more aware of the unsuitability of the surrounding for animals, and the menagerie closed down in 1835. What happened to the animals, you might be asking? Well, 150 animals were rehoused to Regent's Park in 1826, creating what would become London Zoo, an actual purpose-built real zoo, not a prison-cum-castle turned into a zoo. And although exotic animals are precious and valuable, they weren't the most valuable things kept under lock and key at the Tower of London. Weapons and armour were stored there, of course. But being such a secure place, the Tower of London was the ideal place to control England's currency supply, the supply of money. All English coins were created or minted at the Tower of London from the end of the 13th century up until 1810 in what was called the Tower Mint. And, of course, if you go to the Tower of London today, you too can see debatably the most valuable piece of jewellery in the country, the crown jewels, which are thought to be worth anywhere from four to six billion euros. And who is responsible for guarding them? The Beefeaters, of course. And our final curiosity about the Tower of London is that the first person to be kept prisoner in the Tower of London was also the first person to escape from the Tower of London. His name was Bishop Ranulph Flambert, and he was thrown into the Tower of London after falling out of favour with William the Conqueror's younger brother, Henry I. Henry I threw the bishop into the tower, but it sounded like it wasn't a particularly uncomfortable prison. The bishop still had access to money and fine food. He decided to put on a banquet, a large meal, for his jailers, and ordered for barrels of wine to be sent into the tower. In one of these barrels was a rope, and while the guards were enjoying the fine food and wine, perhaps enjoying the wine too much, the bishop used this rope to lower himself out of the tower to safety. His supporters had arranged for a horse to be left outside the window. The bishop jumped onto it, rode all the way to the coast, and then got on a boat to France. So there you go, a brief history of the Tower of London. From its beginnings as a defensive castle, a royal residence, prison, mint, zoo, and home to the crown jewels, the Tower of London has a rich and fascinating history, spanning over 900 years. It's little wonder that the once-feared Tower of London is now one of the most popular UK tourist attractions, as well as a national monument that is a central part of English history. And it's one that you can still visit today, and I'd certainly recommend you do. Go to the tower, strike up a conversation with a beefeater, think of all the prisoners who spent their last days looking out through the prison windows, and keep a lookout for ravens. If you can't see six of them, well, you might just be the first person to realise that the future isn't bright for the British monarchy. Okay then, that is it for today's episode on the Tower of London. I hope it's been an interesting one, and you've learnt about the real history 
of London's most iconic landmark, as well as some of the quirky details that you're less likely to hear about on the tourist trail. As always, I would love to know what you thought about this episode. Have you ever been to the Tower of London, or are you planning to? If you've been, did you see the Beefeaters or even the Crown Jewels? I would love to know, so let's get this discussion started. For the members among you, you can head right into our community forum, which is at community.leonardoenglish.com, and get chatting away to other curious minds. And as a final reminder, if you enjoyed this episode, and you are wondering where to get all of our bonus episodes, plus the transcripts, subtitles, and key vocabulary, then the place to go for that is leonardoenglish.com. And if you aren't yet ready to become a member, but you would like to do something to support the show, then I would love for you to think about leaving a review or a star rating on your favorite podcast app. It takes less than 30 seconds to do, but they are super helpful, and each one brings a smile to my face. You've been listening to English Learning for Curious Minds by Leonardo English. I'm Alistair Budge, you stay safe, and I'll catch you in the next episode.